You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbeck. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18 is where we're going to be, and in a moment we're going to begin in verse 16. And those of you watching online, you know, uh, over these past six or seven or eight months, uh, maybe you haven't had a chance to be here with us in person, or maybe you're just uh, from another state. We have people from uh, various states all around America, and even maybe you're in another country. And I just want to just give you an opportunity right now. I'm speaking directly to those watching online. That if you would, one of the ways that you could help us help you is to help us know who you are. There are so many different people out there. And one of the things that's very difficult to do uh, during this season is to identify who you are. So if you wouldn't mind, and they're going to, on the screen, they're going to put, take the next step number. And if you would, while I'm preaching, sometime during the message, if you would just text in to 407-338-4024 and just say, who you are. Uh, Help us to know who you are and how we can pray for you. We want to engage you this week. And church family, let's give them a hand, all these people that are watching online. And we just want to just make sure that you know that you, even though you're not physically here with us, you are truly loved at Central. Now, one other commercial thing is this, is that we are in a very uh, tumultuous season in our country, in our nation, with the election. Many of you are probably, your, your nerves are on edge. And so we want to encourage you. So starting this Wednesday, you're going to be seeing on social media, on our website, an opportunity to pray. It's, it's going to be a prayer guide that will lead you to the election and then pass it all the way to our Life Action Conference. And we want to encourage you to take part in that. So we're going to, you're going to be getting emails from that. And also, it'll be all on our social media platforms. And we want you to be able to be prayed up for what God is going to be doing, not just in this election, but after the election and what's going on with our Life Action Conference. Well, let's go ahead and stand as we read God's Word in Genesis chapter 18 and verse number 16. Genesis 18 and verse 16. The men, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood, uh, stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of those 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. And he spoke again to him and said, Suppose you found 40 there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak, suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of the bystander effect? The bystander effect? It is a sociological phenomenon where the willingness, uh, where a person's willingness to intervene or help someone in an emergency situation decreases by the number of bystanders who are watching the same thing. So, in other words, people tend to look around. See if there are people around, if they see someone in trouble, and then assume that someone else will help them. So just imagine this week you're on I-4, you're late to work, which isn't hard to imagine, those of you who take that commute, and while you're there, there's a huge wreck in front of you. You see the entire thing. You see the person, uh, the two people that are in this wreck, and, and you just say, you know what, I'm in a hurry. There are tons of people on this new parking lot called I-4, and, and I have to get to work on time, and so all these people saw what I saw, and so somebody will help them. Out, but I've got to get to work. Well, that's the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a diminished feeling of responsibility. I'm not going to worry because someone else will help that person in need. Well, in the American church, we have an ongoing bystander effect. We think that it's someone else's job to intervene for the desperate needs of others. It's someone else's job to pray for others. It's someone else's job to pray for the city. It's someone else's job to share the love of God with the city. But in reality, we are all called as believers to care, rescue the perishing, and care for the dying, and to pray for our city. The life of Abraham, as we've been going through these few weeks, is faith illustrated, but it's not faith perfected. We saw over the course of this series that Abraham has been called to leave the known for the unknown, to trust the God of the impossible, and to take his hands off of his life to be a blessing to others. In chapter 18, last Sunday, we saw that Jesus and the two angels appeared to Abraham and his wife Sarah. They came with two reasons. They came with two purposes. Purpose number one was to announce to Sarah that she was pregnant and that this time next year they would have a baby. And the second thing they came is they came to tell Abraham that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So when Sarah hears the news, she laughs. When Abraham hears the news, he prays. And he's going to risk his life to intercede on behalf of a city that does not deserve it. And here's what we're going to learn this morning. That God invites Abraham to intercede for the city. He does, and he points us to the ultimate intercessor who gives us the inspiration to intercede on behalf of others. So let's just look at this. Number one, God's invitation. God invited Abraham to intercede on behalf of the city of Sodom. In verse 16, as we looked a moment ago, we see that Jesus, uh, the Lord, and two angels are with Abraham under the oaks of Mamre, and then now they are going to take their venture to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And the Bible says here that Abraham goes with them, walks out with them towards that location. Jesus has just given the news, the good news, that a baby's going to be born in less than a year, but yet there's other business. And so this other business takes them on some sort of, some sort of a, a journey towards Sodom. They go on a 20-mile journey from Hebron to the Jordan Valley, that lush Jordan Valley where the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are. And this is the place that, uh, that Lot... Uh, Abraham's nephew and his family were living. And so as we read here, they're, they're heading on this direction, verse 16. And then in verse 17 through 19, we get what's called a soliloquy. Uh, this is a, a, a way uh, for the audience to understand what's going on. So there's an internal discussion, a monologue that's given so that we that are reading can kind of know and understand what God is thinking. God here says... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, I want you to understand that God does not have inner dialogues with himself like we do. God doesn't talk to himself like we talk to ourselves. What this is, is what scholars will call an anthropomorphism. Now, I know it's 9.30 in the morning and no one's really excited about anthropomorphism, but basically what the anthropomorphic language here is, is that God, the almighty, infinite God, is, is using this particular uh, tool to help us understand what's going on here. Because what God is says, says here to himself within this soliloquy is that I have chosen Abraham. He says, uh, he says I shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, verse 19, for I have chosen him that he would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord so that I can do what I promised to him that I would do. So what you see here is that God in this story is, is sharing to us as we're reading this story his great love for Abraham. In other words, the only reason that God tells Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, so you have to understand God, it, God has his own prerogative. He can do what he wants to do. It's his prerogative. But yet God here speaks to Abraham, tells him what his plans are, and the whole purpose of the soliloquy is to show us that, that Abraham was the friend of God, that Abraham wasn't just belly button lent to God, that he was someone that God saw as a person made in his image that was his representative. So in verse 20, God lets Abraham in on what his plan is for the city of Sodom. He is going to judge the city and he's going to destroy the city. Why? Because the Bible says that there has been an outcry. The outcry isn't coming from the city of Sodom. It was from the city surrounding Sodom against the city of Sodom. And it was a cry of help. It was a cry of help in time of deep distress. It was the cry of the oppressed. It was the cry of injustice. The word here, outcry, is the same word used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, speaking of Abel's blood. It's also found in Exodus chapter 3, speaking of the children, Exodus chapter 1, speaking of, of the children of Israel in, in, in an outcry, one deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And what you see here is that God hears the cries of people. Now, the Bible says here that the reason for this uh, judgment is there the sin of Sodom was very grave. It was a very grave sin. The sin of Sodom was cruelty, violence, and oppression of poor people. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 tells us that, that this is what God says about the city of Sodom. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. See, we tend to think most people in the church believe that the sin of Sodom was perversion. But actually, the sin of Sodom was pride. 
Because when you mistreat the poor, when you mistreat the helpless, when you mistreat the voiceless, you are able to do all kinds of evil. See America 2020. And so what God says is that I am going to bring judgment, not just on the perversion of the people, but the pride of people. They had all kinds of wealth, all kinds of advantages, but they oppressed people with their advantages. So the Lord sends angels. He sends two angels to go in and inspect the city of Sodom. Now, as we read this, we're like, well, doesn't God already know? The truth is he does know. The reason that God sends these two angels, there, there's going to be a purpose here. It wasn't so that God didn't know what was going on. God is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere, and God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God here came down to confront the sin of Sodom, not for his benefit, but for Abraham's benefit. He came down, took upon himself flesh and blood to do a reconnaissance, reconnaissance mission with these two angels for the purpose for Abraham to be involved in the situation. If God wanted to, he could have just completely turned the entire city into crispy critters in one second flat. But yet what we notice here is as the two angels go on a reconnaissance mission to the city of Sodom, it leaves Abraham and the Lord alone. And this is the moment, this is Abraham's moment that he takes to speak to the Lord. So in verse 23, the Bible says that Abraham drew near. That word draw near in the Hebrew is actually a legal term, which it kind of speaks of when an attorney approaches the bench. So in that moment, Abraham, alone with God, is going to be the legal representative for the city of Sodom. He is going to intercede like a priest to God on behalf of the city of Sodom. Now, let me just make sure that we understand. A prophet and a priest are two different things. A prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. But a priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. So here, Abraham is priesting. He is filling the gap. He is the legal representative before God. He's the only one before God advocating for them not to be destroyed. So what you notice here is that when Abraham speaks to God about the city of Sodom, he doesn't say, you know what, let's just take care of my cousin, uh, my nephew Lot. As a matter of fact, you see here that he never mentions Lot in any of these dialogues. I mean, it would have been really easy for Abraham to say, you know what, I know you need to destroy Sodom. They are a sorry, vile, low-down, horrible place with horrible people. But before you do that, could we just kind of save my nephew and his family lot? I mean, could we just, just take care of them and then you could do all kinds of shock and awe to those nasty Canaanites. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he prays for the city. And these, were, these people that were Canaanites were, were not like the world's nicest people. This wasn't like the nicest place to live. These were vile, wicked people that were known for cruelty and injustice and, and sinful perversion. They were extremely unkind to Abraham. But what does he do? Instead of just asking for those he loved, he asked for the entire city. Now, as you read here, we didn't go through it all, but he puts himself at great risk. You have to understand, he says multiple times, Lord, don't get angry with me. Lord, you know I'm just dust and ashes. Lord, I am a nobody. But every time he comes before God and he asks mercy for the city, he is pushing it with God. 
He is putting himself on the line each time because he is talking to El Shaddai. He is talking to God Almighty. He is talking to the creator and the judge of all the earth who knows every sinful thought Abraham has ever had. But here's why Abraham does it. Abraham does it because he knows that he has been called to be the channel of blessing to the nations. Notice what God says in that soliloquy. Again, God's not having some internal conversation with himself to pep himself up. God here is doing this for our benefit and maybe even for Abraham's benefit. Because here he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that he shall surely become a great nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? God called Abraham to be a priest, to be a channel of blessing in which God would bless his people and bless all the peoples of the earth. He did not ask Abraham in this episode to just spare those that he loved. The reason that God told Abraham his plan was so that Abraham would ask him to be a blessing rather than a destroyer. God blessed Abraham. Now think about this. God blessed Abraham when Abraham did not deserve it. Can we agree with that? And you know why he did that? So that Abraham could be a blessing to others who do not deserve it. Now this, you hold what I'm saying in your mind because it's going to make sense as we keep going. So we see God is inviting Abraham. He's saying, come and and intercede on behalf of the city. And Abraham steps up to the plate. And so now we see Abraham's intercession. And and yet what his intercession does is it points us to a greater intercessor. In verses 23 through 32, we see the first extended prayer in the Old Testament. What you have here is a prayer. You have a man speaking to God in a very prolonged way. And more than Abraham was praying, he was priesting. And and as he comes to God, he comes with two theological questions. Here are the two questions that he asked. Number one is, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, I know you. You're not an unjust. You're not an unholy God. You understand the the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. You're not going to just sweep away the righteous with the wicked. You are a just God. And then he gets to the second question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So here, Abraham, as a defense attorney, is not asking God to break the law. He is assuming the law. He knows about the justice of God. He knows that, God, it is not right for you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That is nothing like you. But here's the problem. Stay with me. Abraham's definition of righteous and God's definition of righteous are going to be two different things. God's idea or standard of righteousness is morally perfect without sin. Abraham and even our standard of righteous is relative. That is, compared to other people, I'm all right. You know, compared to Hitler, he's a good old boy. (laughs) You know, compared to Cruella DeVille, she's a good old girl. Compared to these other people, I'm okay. And maybe that's where you are today. You say, I'm a good person. I'm a righteous person compared to so-and-so. I'm really good. Because what a lot of us do is we have a sliding scale or a relative righteousness. So if you've ever prayed this prayer, God, would you wipe out all the evil in all the world? Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. Or maybe you're doing it right now during the election season. Here's what you're really saying to God. God, wipe out all the evil that is worse than me. 
Because the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. If you look around at your neighbor, they're not righteous. If they look at you, they know you're not righteous. No, none are righteous. None seek after God. So I want you to note something. Abraham begins to negotiate with God for the city. Do you notice that? He starts with 50. Then he goes to 45. Then he goes to 30. Then to 20. Then to 10. He's on a roll. He must be butter. He's on a roll. I'm trying to wake you guys up. Do you realize how hard it is to preach to you all sometimes? I'm just kidding. You say, you don't know how hard it is to listen to you most times. So God says, I'm going to spare the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. But then he stops. Now, if you're a negotiator, you would keep going, right? I mean, that's the instinct of a negotiator, right? If you have a friend that's selling his car for $50,000 and you get him down to 10, you're just going to keep going, right? I'll, I'll, for $5,000, i will buy it. What about $1,000? Then, then at the end, of, if you're a really good negotiator, you just look at them and say, you know, why don't you just pay me to take the car off your hands? Why doesn't Abraham keep going? Why doesn't he go all the way down to one? Why is it in verse number 33, the Lord went his way and Abraham went his way? There was no like here, it's done. We know he gets down to 10, but that's it. Why doesn't he just go down to one? Abraham knew that there wasn't very many righteous people in the city of Sodom. It seems here that Abraham has tried, but he's failed. Because I think in my mind, and and in Abraham's mind, that he recognized that there wasn't even one righteous person enough. There was not one person that was righteous enough to spare the city. Now, what we do know, if you read chapter 19, is that God does spare his nephew Lot and his daughters, but it wasn't because he was awesome. And the rest, what does he do? He destroys the city with fire and brimstone. The judge of all the earth did what was just. Now, some people have so many problems with a God that would do that. How could a God ever destroy a city like that? And here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to understand. Some people come and they say, how can a loving God judge people and destroy them? Well, one is this. If you don't have a God who judges, then you can't have a merciful God. There's no justice, there's no standard of righteousness, then there is no mercy. A God who never judges is never merciful. It's like a parent who never disciplines, is never merciful when their kids act for mercy. But here's the other thing. How can you deal with the pain and injustice in the world if there is no God who judges justly? If if there is no final justice for those who continually sin against him, who's going to deal with injustice? See, God's love is infinite, his grace is free, but his mercy has an expiration date. And so this leaves us with a question. Is there anyone who is righteous enough to stop the wrath of God on our behalf? Is there anyone who can stand in the gap? See, what Abraham couldn't do and what he didn't understand, you and I know. We know that we need a better priest than Abraham. I need a better priest than Abraham. I don't want Abraham being the only one that stands between me and the judgment of God. I need one who is truly and perfectly righteous. Now the question is, would God save for the sake of one righteous person? The answer is, yes. The right one. Who is the right one? 
Let's do it together. Jesus. See, Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus' righteousness is so great and his sacrifice is so satisfying to God that on Jesus' behalf, we can ask for forgiveness from our sins and God will grant it to us. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's one mediator. Her name's not Mary. It's not me, it's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost and the guttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand that right now in heaven you have a great and perfect high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for you? And Abraham here was invited by God to intercede on behalf of his city, even though he wasn't successful, so that he could point us to the great high priest. Think about this. Abraham prayed for a people who could hurt him, but Jesus prayed for a people who did hurt him, who crucified him. And yet on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He's praying for you and me. Abraham risked his life for the people he prayed for, but Jesus gave his life for the people he prayed for. Abraham understood that, that the, righteous person, the righteousness of one person can be enough to save others. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So in everywhere that Abraham wasn't successful, Abraham or Jesus was. And so Jesus is that great high priest. So if you are a Christian, the only way you come to God is through Jesus. The only way that you're spared from the wrath of God is Jesus. And the only hope you have in this life is Jesus. So now it gets to the last point. Here's really where the sermon is. Our inspiration. God calls us to intercede on behalf of our city. Just as God called Abraham to intercede on behalf of Sodom, he calls you and I to to intercede on behalf of Sanford. To stand in the gap for our city, our community, our nation, and our neighborhood. Each of us have been placed in the community that we live in to pray for and sacrifice on its behalf. Like Abraham, God has blessed you to be a blessing where you are to the people around you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You are priests. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, you are a kingdom of priests. And here's what God says, here's what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 7 verse 26. He says that it is God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God sovereignly arranged where you would live, when you would live, and who you would live around. Why? So that others might seek God around you. He has given you access to God through Jesus to serve other people and to pray for them. So it is no accident where you live. It is no accident where you work. 
It is no accident what team your kids play sports on. It is no accident who you sit next to at work. It is no accident who serves you in the restaurant after church this morning. It is no accident the people that God has placed in your life. God has strategically, sovereignly, providentially, supernaturally put people in your life so that you could reach them for Jesus. You say, well, this city is too messed up. These people I'm around, there's no hope. I go to Walmart and I look around and say, there's no hope. Well, I want you to remember this, that God did not save you because you were special. He didn't save you because he saw some kind of potential in you. It is not that you and I are relatively more righteous than other people. Often when we read this story, we see ourselves as righteous Abraham, but in reality, we are Sodom. We are the ones that are proud and wicked and evil, destined to destruction, but Jesus came along and he interceded for us. See, Abraham was the only thing that stood between God's judgment and the city of Sodom, and he didn't, well, he wasn't enough. But Jesus is the only thing that stands between God's judgment enough, and he is enough. And because Jesus bridged the gap between us and God, we are called to bridge the gap to other people. We are called to point everyone to that bridge. David Platt said this. He said, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. See, you and I have something that Abraham did not have. We know that Jesus is righteous, righteous enough to spare any city, no matter how wicked or how bad. And therefore, we can come boldly and expectantly. We can come more persistently than Abraham because we are told by God to come to him and not be afraid and not lose heart. So we can ask God for big things for our city, our community, our nation, our neighborhood, and our church. One of the things that I am asking specifically for is for someone to give our church a house to help women who are in need. And I believe that one day, somehow by his providence, he's going to give us a house. And if you have a house you're not using, I don't care how dilapidated it is, we'll take it for the kingdom of God. John Newton wrote this hymn that said this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. See, when we pray for other people, <clears throat> we are believing that God can change their eternities. When we're praying, we're, we're not just saying these Mickey Mouse prayers for our city, but when we pray for other people, when we pray for our city, when we pray for our nation, we are speaking to the creator and the judge of all the earth. David Wells put it this way. He says, prayer is rebellion against the status quo. It is rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute undenying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm originally established by God. You know, because of this, we can have optimism for our future. There are a lot of believers, even myself, I've had, I've had to have pep talks this week with myself. We think about the future and we get discouraged. And I hear people say, you know what, we've lost our culture. And if the wrong person gets in the White House, then it's over for the church. 
The world is going to hell. Persecution is going to keep us from sharing the gospel. Coronavirus is going to keep us locked down. But here's what you have to understand. Jesus is not finished yet. Jesus did not die so that a group of scared Christians could huddle up together and hang out until he returns. He did not die so that we could play church until we die. Jesus died so that we can boldly pray and go in his name until every person in every place hears the gospel. And Jesus said that the gates of hell shall not keep us out. So my friends, we got to pray. We don't have time to play games. We got to serve. We got to go. Let me end with this. Last year, I was in Poland. And I visited Auschwitz. I don't know if you've ever been there. But Auschwitz is the place of unimaginable horrors. It is a place where millions of Jews were systematically murdered. One of the eeriest sights I've had is standing here along the railroad tracks. That's my photo. And seeing which you don't see in the photo of the boxcars of where hundreds of Jews were herded together and sent into that concentration camp. If you go into, the, if you go into Auschwitz, you'll see the different museums and you'll, you'll see set up these, these rooms that are, that are 10 feet tall and there'll be this glass divider and you'll see shoes of all the prisoners. You'll see the teeth of all the prisoners. You'll see the hair because what they would do is they would take the prisoner's hair. They would cut all their, all their hair. They would take that hair and they would actually sell it or they would repurpose it and make blankets for them to sleep with at night. Unimaginable horrors. A few years ago I read a book by Erwin Lutzer, When a Nation Forgets God. And in that book he gives an account of a Christian that lived in World War II in Germany. And here's what that Christian said. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance, then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train cars as they passed by. We realize that they were carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camps. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing to the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed by, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. We have a city that's on a long black train destined to destruction and yet the American church loves singing but they don't love praying we love entertainment but we don't love evangelism we love 
for others to care, but we don't want to personally intervene. But listen, if, if this election season, if what's going on in our world, if coronapocalypse has not told us anything, we cannot afford to be bystanders anymore. There is a whole lost world out there that needs Jesus. And we can't stand on the sidelines while others are giving their lives on the field. We can't pretend that judgment isn't coming. We need to do something. We need to stand in the gap. We need to pray for the people of our nation and our city and our community like we've never prayed for them before. And we need to be bold to share the gospel with them. Listen, if the church doesn't pray for the city, who will? If you and I won't pray for our neighbors, who will? So this morning, if you're watching online, if you're in this room, we need, a pr- we need a season of prayer. We need revival. We need God to change our hearts to love who He loves. Not just the people that we love, but to love who He loves. He loves the Democrat and the Republican. He loves all people. He loves everyone. And our job is to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And so... If not us, then who? And if not now, then when? So what I want us to do is I just want us to pray. Just to bow your heads where you are. We're going to, while we're praying, there's going to be a hymn that's going to be sang. It says to turn your eyes on Jesus. If you're here in this room and you need someone to pray over you, I want to encourage you, and I'll give you that number at the end to text in, and and we will pray for you. Because of COVID-19, we're not allowed to do some of the things that we normally do. But we want to make sure that you're prayed for. If you're online and you need somebody to pray for you, we're going to give you that number to text in. But we need to get serious about this thing, folks. And it starts when we're on our knees. So here's what I want you to do. You can be where in the pew you're at. You don't have to get down on your knees. But if the Holy Spirit prompts you to get serious and you really want to feel the need, you just get on your knees where you are. You could talk to the Lord. If you're at home, get, if your family needs to come together, let's pray that God would do something. I'm going to pray and then I'm just going to leave you in just a season of just prayer for a moment. And there's going to sing a hymn and then we're going to end. Father, in Jesus' name, I don't know what you want to do with us this morning. But I believe with all of my heart that you want to help me get my eyes off of this world. I know this morning while I was preaching that you were convicting me of only caring for those that I love. And so Father, I ask you forgive me for not caring for everyone. That God, that we don't just segregate people by who they vote for. But God, we see, we want to see them as you see them. Lord, we love you. God, change our hearts to love you and to love others. God, help us, God, to have that desire to want to bridge the gap. This weekend, in our neighborhoods or when we go to work or when we go to the restaurant, God, that we would have the eyes of Christ to see people that are hurting and broken and and on a highway to hell. God, we would remember how good you've been to us. And we would share that love. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a few moments, and then I'm going to have you stand. Just a few moments. If you want to just pray right now.
Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.